This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to I Know That Face, the only podcast which honors the often unappreciated by the masses work of character actors. I'm Stephen Portia. My name is Andrew Carroll. And this is the second part of our deep dive into the career of one of the, the best character actors of our time and maybe ever, John Malkovich. This time we're looking at his uh, 21st century work. Andrew, do you have a summary of that? I do indeed. By the time of the new millennium, John Malkovich was an actor recognised by name, face and voice. His first film of this new era was in Shadow of the Vampire, where he played famous German expressionist director F.W. Murnau opposite Willem Dafoe's Max Schreck. In 2002, he took on the oft-played role of Tom Ripley in Ripley's Game opposite Dougray Scott and Ray Winstone. By the mid-2000s, Malkovich began to appear in more comedies such as Johnny English, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, Burn After Reading and Red. Never one to forgo experimentation, he starred in Robert Zemeckis' 2007 CGI adaptation of the old English poem Beowulf, which reunited him with Winstone. 2008's Changeling marked his second collaboration with Clint Eastwood 15 years after in The Line of Fire. As the 2010s began, Malkovich took on more supporting roles in films such as Warm Bodies, Deepwater Horizon, Mile 22, ugh, Bird Box, Extremely Wicked, Shockingly Evil and Vile, which is how I feel about Mile 22, <laughs> and Velvet Buzzsaw. In 2015, he wrote and starred in 100 Years, a film made by Robert Rodriguez on behalf of the cognac company Remy Martin, which will be released in 2115. Put that in your diaries. Upcoming roles include El Tonto, Wash Me in the River, Shattered, and The Charities. Those are the names of the movies, not the characters he plays in those movies. As a producer, Malkovich has produced indie hits such as Ghost World, Juno, and The Perks of Being a Wallflower. Yeah, I think Malkovich's 21st century work is very interesting and varied, and I I think... If he spent the 80s and 90s sort of cementing his reputation as the the go-to guy for playing these sophisticated, intense, intelligent characters, but you know, with an air of danger, mm. I think by the end of the 90s into the 2000s, you see him, I think, taking that reputation and either applying it to more pulpy and personally for me, more fun genre movies like your stuff like Ripley's Game. Yeah. But then also sometimes taking that reputation and, and poking some fun at it. And I think you see that in being John Malkovich, obviously, uh, which we talked about in our last episode. But also Burn After Reading, definitely. And then also a little bit in Shadow of a Vampire and maybe a bit in Velvet Buzzsaw. As well. uh, yeah, no, I, well, I don't remember him all that much in Velvet Buzzsaw, but I think in, in Shadow of a Vampire, he's definitely having fun with it. Yeah, and um, I think it should be said that John Malkovich has openly talked about this, that he lost a lot of money in the the Madoff investment scandal in 2008. And there's a great Guardian Mm. profile on him where he says outright, you know, I had to do more work that paid for a number of years and work all the time. And we used to spend a lot of money producing movies that lost quite a bit of money. That stopped. (laughs) I think that while that is maybe why you see him doing kind of more TV now or occasionally show up in projects that are a bit beneath him, like... Transformers 3 or mm. Jonah Hex. Um, I think he still works with a lot of talented directors, makes a lot of good movies. And from the work of his, you know, I've seen, he's always given it his all. And like, I won't talk about it too deeply, but I watched Arkansas last year mm. on Netflix, which is this odd, but like decent little neo-noir that uh, actor Clark Duke directed. From Kick-Ass, that guy. Yeah. And Malkovich must be in it for 15 minutes tops, like at the beginning of the mm. movie. Like he plays this constantly smiling to the point of menacing, corrupt sheriff and with his thick southern accent. And he could have phoned it in and he didn't. Yeah. You know what I mean? And he, and he kind of walked away with the movie. Yeah. So um, I, I find him interesting for that. But do you, have, do you have any thoughts on this kind of body of work we're going to talk about? Probably? Well, I'm, gl- I'm just glad you explained uh, what, what happened with why he's just shown up in so many B-movies over the last 10 years because and TV. Because I was like... Why hasn't he been in like a a good movie for at least six years? 
he is in The New Pope, which is the Sorrentino HBO TV show, and apparently he's amazing. Which is a TV show. True. Why hasn't but he been Sorrentino in a good movie? Sorrentino made it, you know. <laughs> Will you get into it? Then? Yeah. Will I talk about Shadow of a Vampire first? Go for it, yeah. yeah. I covered it in Willem Dafoe, so. Yeah, and, and you you gave it a fair bashing, if I, I recall. I did, yeah. And um, I stood up for it kind of half-heartedly, mm. as I hadn't seen it in years, yeah. and, and having revisited it now, I can mount my defense properly. Go for it. Yeah, it won't work. Bench. It won't Counselor. work. Yeah. Um, Shadow of Vampire. Objection. <laughs> Overruled. Um, Shadow of Vampire is this Charlie Kaufman, sort of Spike Jones-esque fictionalized retelling of the making of FW. That's high praise. That's very high Marin praise. <laughs> Our masterpiece. I'm coming up with the guns blazing. Retelling. You shouldn't be. <laughs> fictionalized retelling of the making of F.W. Murnhead's early cinema horror masterpiece Nosferatu, which itself was an unofficial adaptation of uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula. Uh, basically, the actor Max Schreck, who played Count Orlock, which was Nosferatu's version of Dracula, mm. was so good that an urban legend started that he really was a vampire, uh, which this movie uses as its jumping off point. So John Malkovich plays uh, the legendary director F.W. Murnhead, uh, depicted here as a genius, but also an exacting, kind of ruthless mm. filmmaker. In order to achieve his vision for his film, he strikes a deal with an old, decrepit vampire, played by Willem Dafoe. He says, you know, basically, star in my movie and you can devour the leading lady, played by Catherine McCormick, when we're done. How dare you! How dare you destroy my photographer! You idiot! Did I kill some of your people, Marno? I can't remember. We have an arrangement. Don't pretend you mourn here, Doctor. I know you. Why him, you monster? Why not the script girl? (laughs) The script girl. I'll eat her later. No, you will not. Our bargain. You agreed not to hurt my people. I think one of your takedowns of this movie was that you felt Defoe and Malkovich should have swapped roles and... Years ago, Danny Boyle directed a stage production of Frankenstein where I think the leads were Benedict Cumberbatch and Johnny Lee Miller and they alternated yeah. between Victor and the creature and it's a pity like they didn't think of that here. <laughs> they yeah, couldn't do that yeah. here. That said, I think if I was to pick one pairing of the roles, I think they got it right because for one thing, I think Defoe has the sharp cheeks to play a Ken Orlock type, you know, and I think is more of a physically transformative actor than Malkovich. But I don't think Defoe would be as strong as Malkovich is at playing someone who is villainous, but is charming and seductive enough that the characters in the movie put up with it or even just don't realize it. Because, like, early on, the character of Greta, you know, wants to quit Nosferatu and return to theater, and Malkovich's Murnau convinces her to stay on. And he does it by explaining that her character, Ellen, is a woman who discovers the ultimate expression of love and the most exquisite pain. It's a very demanding role. It is the role that will make you great as an actress. Consider it a sacrifice for your art. And when he says it, like, he's staring with so much intensity at her while, like, he clutches her head and is stroking her hair. And Malkovich is talking as, like, typical dulcet tones, but with this kind of lovely to the ears of German sounding lilt. And to the viewer, you know, the lines and the way he delivers them is incredibly foreboding, you know, foreshadowing what's to happen later with her character. But we totally get why Greta would stay on in the movie because uh, we understand how to her it just sounds important. Mm. You know, like, wow, that, that, she sounds cool. I want to I wanna live up to that. Mm. Um, whereas I think if Defoe said the same lines, just something about his energy, I think she'd just be running for the door. She'd be like, oh, I'm okay, <laughs> you know. And I'm not saying, like, Defoe can't play good or charming people. I just think... Malkovich's particular blend of sort of dark and light is really effective here, even if Defoe's incredibly 
I think impressive kind of out there performance is understandably what garnered most of the mm. attention surrounding the movie and I I, I like this movie because I, I just think it's a very playful film in that it's like a retelling of Dracula but on the set of a Dracula movie you know there's something sort of like I think Kaufman-y about that you know as somebody who you know, likes horror and is interested in cinema history but I think what makes it sort of timeless and relevant to today is its depiction of like a genius but a moral director mm. This film's, I should say, like this film's depiction of Murnau as ruthless and dictatorial is not true. In real life, it says online he was known for being a very sensitive person. Yeah, <laughs> I read that too. Which is nice. And, you know, while I'm talking about inaccuracies, I should say the film depicts several of the major crew members on Nosferatu being killed by the vampire. But in real life, all of them went on to live uh, long lives after the film's production. So, Except F.W. Murnau, who died in a car crash. The one character doesn't die. This movie is a fantasy. But I do feel there's a lot more talk now in film criticism about can you separate great art from the artists who make it when they're said to have done bad things or have like bad reputations personally and I think what's impressive about Malkovich's performance here is how he manages to both convey how unquestionably gifted the movie's take on Murnau is but also gradually reveal how sort of selfish and monstrous he and directors can be and I think in terms of you know showing Murnau's creative side the movie does this great thing where it'll transition to Nosferatu's old black and white style when Murnau was shooting scenes and you have like you know Catherine McCormick or Eddie Izzard or Willem Dafoe playing the actors playing the characters in mm. Nosferatu and you know I think it's a really lovely replication of Nosferatu style but because Nosferatu was a silent movie Malkovich's Murnau can literally narrate the scene for his actors as they acted out and for us watching and his direction is always really canny and evocative and Malkovich gives it real flair like you know he's telling a story like when he's shooting Orlok's death at the end he's like you grab your heart with anguish and you start to die alone the weight of centuries bends you and Murnau also calls uh, uh, Shrek moon chaser and vase of prehistory in the scene, which I think is pretty great and <laughs> descriptive. And I, I think throughout the movie, Markovich and Myrna always talks very eloquently about the medium of film, which was relatively new at the time of Nosferatu's release. I think he says, like, we are scientists engaged in the creation of memory, but our memory will neither blur or fade. And I think Malkovich gives those speeches the right level of awe and profundity. Like, watching you and I go, yeah, that's what cinema is. Memories and dreams mm. captured forever. But if he's a scientist, he's kind of like a mad scientist, yeah. you know? And I think his fatal flaw is believing that his dreams of conquering the medium, which he hopes to do by achieving this never-before-seen authenticity, you know, by having this real-life vampire play a vampire in the movie, he thinks that's more important than looking after and ensuring a safe environment for his crew, and I think that's a mistake many, you know, real-life directors make, and I think Malkovich teases out Murnau's selfish streak really well, because, like, early on, he's shooting a scene and a local villager walks into the frame to complain about the crew removing the crosses on the wall, which were there to ward off vampires, and I, they took them down because, as a Udo Kier's assistant says, they overwhelmed the composition. And... <laughs> You see Murnau just shouting rudely, a native has wandered into my frame. And when she tries to warn him, he's like dismissively like to everyone else, like, am I really being bothered by this? And, you know, later he's shown like tricking his main actor, played by Eddie Izzard, into cutting his finger to achieve the, the famous scene in Nosferatu where Orlok can't control himself around blood. Mm. And when Murnau sees the blood, Malkovich, you know, flashes this quick switchblade smile that's almost vampiric. Yeah. in its own way. Who know? is the real vampire? A little bit. Yeah. And then later, you know, Shrek bites the cinematographer and Murnau angrily, yet kind of flippantly is like to him, you know, why him, you monster? Why not the script girl? And, you know, Orlok is like, I'll get to her later. <laughs> <laughs> you know, literally in the final scenes, and, you know, spoilers, but a lot of Murnau's key crew are dead on the set, but he's continuing to shoot the film, having become just fully obsessed with it, like had a break with reality. And he paraphrases this real-life Murnau saying, if it's not in frame, it doesn't exist, which I think, along with the movie's final line, is just a nice little cheeky bow on proceedings and all the themes of this movie. And uh, I, I think it's a good movie. I think it's not without uh, interest. I think it's not without its flaws. 
Well, we'll agree to disagree. <laughs> Grant. Any movie that in the last 30 minutes, just Carrie Elways shows up in a biplane and is just thrown out all that energy. I'm like, I can't really hate it. <laughs> Fair enough. I don't hate the movie. I just think it has a terrible script. Yeah. <laughs> I feed the way old men pee, sometimes all at once, sometimes drop by drop. I think that's weirdly sad. I think the start of it is sad. And then you don't like the joke. Yeah, I think the joke is I crap. Have, I have a theory about you. And I like if, if this is true, it's not a, a knock against you. Okay. I think sometimes you have an issue, and I think it's the same thing with Velvet Buzzsaw, where a We're movie very personal here. A movie uses the sort of aesthetic of horror. Yeah. But it isn't really interested in scaring its audience. Yeah. I think you have an issue with that. I would say so, yeah. 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 Oh. If you know, give me the goods. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Well, we both had the same issue with uh, the Charlie Kaufman movie that was on Netflix. True. I kind of can forgive it if I'm just really engaged and entertained. Mm. Whereas um, with that movie, I was kind of like, I'm, I'm, I'm a bit in and out. It's not giving me a lot more I guess I was the same things, with uh, you know? Shadow of the Vampire and Velvet Buzzsaw and that I was like entertained in parts, but just kind of in and out every now and again. I mean, Velvet Buzzsaw had the added problem of being a Netflix movie. Um, so I always had one eye on my phone and one eye on the TV. So yeah. Sad. A state of the world. Um, will we move on to uh, Ripley's game? Yeah, yeah. Let's let's agree to agree for once. Yeah. Uh, no, this movie's shite. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so this is an adaptation of Patricia Highsmith's novel of the same name, which is part of her series of novels about anti-hero Tom Ripley. Um, he's this man who lives a double life of being this cultured, polite man of high society who is secretly a career criminal and cold-blooded killer. It's a very famous and much loved character, and the books about him have been adapted numerous times. Elaine Delon played uh, Ripley in Purple Noon. Dennis Hopper did in The American Friend, which is another adaptation of Ripley's Game by Vim Vanders and also slapped so good. Uh, Matt Damon played Ripley in The Taunt of Mr. Ripley, probably the most famous um, of all the adaptations. While I haven't seen all the movies based on those Ripley books or read the books, I must say, um, I would say Malkovich certainly doesn't disappoint, you know, no. following in all those actors' great footsteps. And Ripley's Game centers on an older version of Ripley who is seemingly retired after a big score, which involved him bashing a man with a poker stick to death. And he's now living in Veneto in Italy in the stunning villa and is happily married to a a younger woman who's a professional harpsichordist and while attending a party of course sounds like something Malkovich would do in his real life Um, while attending a party in his new community he is angered when he overhears his less wealthy neighbour Jonathan play with Dugray Scott insulting him and I think the line is uh, that's the problem with Ripley too much money and no taste he says and uh at the time, a shady old colleague of Ripley's reappears named Reeves, played by Ray Winston, and he wants a business rival of his killed and asks Ripley to do the hit because he's an outsider. And instead, uh, Ripley, upon learning that Jonathan, the man who was rude to him, is dying of leukemia, suggests to Reeves that Jonathan do the assassination as revenge. And he tells Reeves to offer Jonathan £100,000 and he'll have to do it because he'll need the money for his family. And yeah, the plot kind of goes from there. I don't know anything about you. Who are you? I'm a creation. I'm a gifted improviser. I lack your conscience. And when I was young, that troubled me. It no longer does. I don't worry about being caught because I don't believe anyone is watching. The world is not a poorer place because those people are dead. It's not. It's one less car on the road. It's a little less noise and menace. You were brave today. You put some money away for your family. That's all. What did you think of this? I enjoyed it, yeah. Uh, I think Malkovich is kind of perfectly cast as this cultured yet sinister man who's who's spent much of his life in Europe. And 
because I've seen I watched um, The Talented Mr. Ripley a couple of months ago and really enjoyed it and I thought it was interesting just seeing a more an older version of this character who's kind of become more sadistic and sharp as he's aged which is kind of evidence in the fact of him showing first of all of the game he's playing with Reeves to get um, Jonathan Giovanni to kill this man in Berlin but also by the fact that after Jonathan kills this man in Berlin he uh, meets up with Ripley and he kills the man he kills this Russian gangster in a in an insect room in like a reptile house in the Berlin Zoo and straight after that he's back in Italy and Ripley is just showing him illustrations of various different bugs he's like I know what I did but you just think this is a nasty coincidence and um, at that point I think Tom Ripley thinks that you know Jonathan Giovanni has learned his lesson we don't need to go any further with this let the man die in peace give the money to his family whereas Reeves is like Reeves is like the kind of full I got a the... bargain <laughs> yeah, yeah 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 exactly he's like I got a bargain and is also like the linchpin of the plot that he's the fulcrum that it operates on and so he needs him to kill this Belarusian gangster or Ukrainian gangster even and it's just inside a war between them so he gets Jonathan to do it on a train and then that's when Ripley has to step in yeah. Which leads to some great lines, which is like Ripley meets with John Jonathan Giovanni, starts he's smoking outside the carriage and he sees the no smoking sign. He's like, Oh, this is a non smoking car. How rude. And puts, <laughs> puts the smoke out and um like as he's about to prepare to because the Ukrainian gangster needs to be strangled uh, in order to incite the gang war because it's like a trademark of the Russian gang that they strangle people. And so he takes off, Ripley takes off his watch to do to do the deed and gives it to uh, Trevani saying, here, take my watch. If it breaks, I'll kill everyone else on this train. <laughs> that sequence in, ends up with him killing both the Ukrainian mob boss and his two henchmen. And one of the survives, which is how, th- how the movie continues and things go wrong. And as he's like manhandling the bodies into the train bath, Tom Ripley's like, I never used to be so crowded in first class. <laughs> He always says just a like a witty pomo. Yeah, yeah. I think um, like a trace of like Tom Ripley's past still exists in this current kind of Ripley because a lot of the times in the talented Mister Ripley, um, which is a completely different movie where a completely different actor plays um, uh, Tom Ripley, but in Ripley's game, Ripley comes across as more like a, more as a criminal genius as opposed to the very lucky compulsive liar that he started out as. Mm. But I think you can kind of tell how either Malkovich either read the books or watched the film. You know, Malkovich isn't stupid. He probably knew that, you know, people would be looking for some of Matt Damon's read into the character, maybe, Mm. in his performance. And so he, like, there are moments where, which is kind of the joy of both the novels and the movies in that Ripley just gets away by the skin of his teeth every time, um, which is kind of the joy of it. And is is something I found a lot of joy in in that movie. What I thought was interesting about this is that uh, those who have listened to our Head Stuff Plus exclusive episodes will know that... uh, Available for only five euro. Yeah, uh, five euro a month. Five Um, euro a month. We're kind of obsessed with this trend in Hollywood where an older star does like a B-movie action crime picture with the intention of bringing their heft to it and kind of making it feel a bit more substantial. And I Mm. think... You, well, you termed it the Stars for Rent. You've got to actually yeah. commit to that series because it's, yeah. it's a great idea. But it, I think it started with Liam Neeson doing Taken and then from there, you know, Kevin Costner, Three Days to Kill, mm. Sean Penn, The Gunman and John Fulton from Paris of Love. And well, Ribby's Game isn't quite an example of that in that it's not really an action movie and it, it predates Taken by a few years. It sort of feels like what Malkovich's version of a Stars for Rent movie would be in that there's something about Malkovich that's a little too arthouse, a little too complicated, a little too intellectual 
to be like a straightforward like yeah, leading yeah. man. So it makes sense that his version of one of these movies is like, yeah, I'm a suave gentleman thief who's also a remorseless killer, and we're gonna get um, Luliana Cavani, like a uh, art house Italian director who made like controversial movies like The Night Porter in the seventies <laughs> to make it, and Ennio Morricone, just the yeah. score it's set in half in Berlin, half in Veneto, and. I think this movie just feels like it's sartorially elegant yeah. as both Malkovich and uh, and as Ripley does. And I, I could kind of just soak in the vibes of this movie and dig it. I think that makes it good, but I think what makes it very good or great is the movie's kind of study of Ripley and all the interesting stuff Malkovich is doing because he quickly establishes Ripley as being very charming yeah, and as a man who kind of enjoys the finer things, like I think just in the opening credit sequence, like his wife is playing the harpsichord, which seems very complicated. It's like a piano on top of a piano. Yeah. And he just starts like yeah, yeah, gently yeah, yeah, kind yeah. of doodling on it with her. He's really nice to his housekeeper who brings him the truffles and he like sniffs the truffles. And he's like, hmm. And he makes like sniffing something look good. I don't know. I mean, like, yeah, yeah. Most times you sniff like, <laughs> but he like makes it sexy. I don't yeah. know why. Like he's like inhaling it. So that's really good. And But he's also makes Ripley simultaneously very intimidating. Like, when he walks in on Jonathan bad-mouthing him and, you know, Jonathan tries to downplay it by being like, oh, uh, Ripley, uh, you know, we were hoping you'd come. And Malkovich is like, why? And, he, <laughs> and the temperature just plummets. Yeah, and, like, he, he won't let it go. And Jonathan says, like, to add spice to the evening. And Ripley's like, meaning. And then he'll say something else and John Malkovich will be like, meaning yeah. and it just and you're like he's going wants to snap his neck in yeah. this moment and he could and it's just like the way he's staring and the enunciating the, the simple word meaning and i think it makes when ripley says to reeves casually as he's stoking a fire like you know do you want to tell me why you're here or do you want some truffling pig to find you dead somewhere in a mm. month or two that feels bone chilling and you're more unsettled by ripley than reeves which is some feat given ray winstone is playing reeves and can be quite scary too and is twice the size of yeah. Yeah. <laughs> pick him up and snap yeah. him on his knee but I think what's also really impressive about Malkovich is that, like, he's never overly animated. You know, like, when yeah. he's happy, he barely smiles. When angry, he quietly seeds. And when, even in stressful situations, he never appears scared or breaks a sweat. And I think there is that line at the end of the movie where Jonathan is like, aren't you scared? And he's like, yeah, I'm terrified. And he just, like, walks away <laughs> yeah, <laughs> casually. Yeah. And, it, and it's almost like he's a bit bored. And, you yeah. know, and he says to Jonathan at one point, you know, after they kill some gangsters, you know, I lack your conscience. And when I was young, that troubled me. It no longer does. I don't worry about being caught because I don't believe anyone was watching. The world is not a poor place because those people are dead. It's one less car on the road. It's a little le- less noise and menace. And later on, he mentions that his parents drowned when he was a boy. And it's, it's almost as if, like, after that terrible event happened to him, he thought, like, it can't get worse. Yeah. You know, the world is cruel. Screw morality. I'm just looking out for me. And I think in doing so over the years, he's become such a keen observer of human behavior and become a manipulator. Like he's grown from, you know, the Matt Damon talented Mr. Ripley into like a real expert in his Mm. sort of field. And I think when you're that intelligent and you've got such a set worldview and you've achieved basically everything you've really wanted, as Ripley has at the start of the movie, you feel immensely powerful, but you also feel kind of boring. Mm. Like life is kind of boring. And I think that's the main reason why he wants to toy with Jonathan in the first place. Like, you know, it's a challenge to him. Like, can I turn this ordinary man who looked down on me into a killer like me? And, you know, all the ingredients are in place. Like he needs money. He's angry. uh, It shouldn't be too hard. And it's almost like Ripley's worked life down to a code. And it's, it's only when the vulgar Reeves tries to change the rules of Ripley's game by making Jonathan commit more assassinations that Ripley makes the U-turn to help Jonathan. And um, I'm going to get into spoilery territory again, but I I think the only time you really see Malkovich's Ripley taken aback and animated is after Jonathan sacrifices himself to save Ripley. Mm. And at first as Jonathan's laying dying, Malkovich asks, like, why did you do that? And and it's not like emotional. It's more like he's like an alien studying human behavior. yeah. 
he's thinking like it doesn't make sense for you to do that I created this mess for you like I don't deserve to be saved then that last scene of the movie is Ripley you know erupting into this big grin while watching his wife perform and replaying Jonathan's sacrifice in his head and I, I think the smile comes from him thinking you know like people can surprise you yeah you know, like yeah. You know, life is still interesting yeah. you know and uh, I just think that's such a strange we- weirdly beautiful yeah. bow to end the movie on that they found this sort of strange friendship yeah yeah yeah, I think it's quite beautiful, yeah. Um, I will just add as a coda to that, that the moment um, Reeves flicks egg yolk onto oh. the sofa, which is probably an antique, uh, you just know he's not surviving that movie. Absolutely not. Yeah. I thought I, we'd see him get killed. Uh, come hell or high water. Yeah, we do. We, 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 don't, we don't see him get killed. We do see we? his body. We see his body, yeah. yeah. Like, come hell or high water. If it wasn't the Ukrainians or the Russians, it would have been Ripley. Yeah. yeah. It's so funny the way he, like, picks up the egg and, like, Ray Winston is so good in this movie and is sort of bringing sexy beast vibes as well Mm, which is another sort of really classy early 2000s crime thriller if you're into that sort of vibe this is is great but we talk about changing yeah in March 1928 Christine Collins played by Angelina Jolie uh, son Walter disappears in Los Angeles desperate and afraid she pushes the LAPD to find him and after five months they find the wrong boy Christine publicly campaigns against the department who do all in their power to silence her, including committing her to an insane asylum. Christine is aided by Presbyterian Reverend Gustav Brieglib, played by John Malkovich, a fanatical critic of the LAPD's strong arm of the law policies. Our thoughts go out again today to Mrs. Christine Collins of Lincoln Heights, whose young son Walter Collins disappeared nearly two weeks ago. Though she is not a member of our congregation, We pray for her today, as we have every day, since we learned of her plight. On the radio and in the newspapers, we are told that the Los Angeles Police Department is doing its very best to reunite mother and child, and I'm sure that that is true. But given its status as the most violent, corrupt, and incompetent police department this side of the Rocky Mountains, I am not sure it's saying a great deal. Uh, Yeah, this is like a film that was like, uh, when it came out into general audiences and general critics outside of the Cannes Film Festival, it was criticised for its conventional staging and lack of nuance, can you hear my air quotes, which I think are actually to the film's strength. I think... Like Clint Eastwood is a, like a diehard Republican as well as the champion of the common man or woman, meaning that his own ideologies, as well as that of the script, align to create a very typical but emotional story of good versus bad. Sometimes that's all you need. Sometimes you don't need it to be that complicated. Yeah. yeah you know, Christine Collins, like, by all accounts, wasn't a bad woman, just wanted her son back, never, clearly never abused him or hit him or anything. There was no reason for him to run away and treated the changeling of the title uh, quite well when it came to housing him and feeding him in the trial period that the <laughs> LAPD gave him gave him to her for. And it, in fairness, it is a film that Ron Howard had intended to direct, which frankly explains a lot. Mm. And I think this is a film that could have ended up as a period drama Oscar bait were it not for Clint Eastwood's nine to five shooting style, which um, is brutal on child actors, I will say. Like the bit where, um, you know, the kid is confessing to the crimes you weren't into it? This interrogation room scene, fine. The one after that where he leads into the bodies, mm, where he's like hitting the ground and screaming at the sky. And it's like, all right, Jake Gyllenhaal. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Give it a rest. Clint Eastwood's like rapid fire, kind of quick pacing, which makes a two hour and 20 minute film feel like 80 minutes. And Jolie's performance of like f- really fiery anger that's quickly hammered into like strong, determined steel 
convince me that this movie is good. Yeah. Regardless of like what anyone else thinks about it. And I think just on Malkovich, I think he's very limited in that he only really shows up to save the day when Christine is rendered like really helpless by the LAPD or by the insane asylum. And I enjoyed the film and I think Malkovich does his best with what he's given, including a very Protestant hairstyle. Um, I think that his role is pretty limited to scenes that are commonplace in period drama Oscar bait. Which I don't think this movie is, as I've said already, but I think that his scenes wouldn't be out of place in one of those kind of movies. And uh, I won't say it made me cry, but it did make me me feel things. I can say that. Um, And I think it ultimately gets this message message of how crimes against children really are the worst crimes imaginable across very well. And uh, I think I just think it's a very good movie, very just a really solid kind of something that was intended as as Oscar bait, but ended up as something more just by virtue of um, simple it was, I guess. Yeah, no, it's definitely good. I, 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 140 minutes, quite a morbid story. Uh, very much so, very yeah. Very watchable. I found it a little bit of a mixed bag in that it's the type of true story that if someone was to imagine it apropos of nothing for a script, people would be like, this is too far-fetched, yeah. you know? Yeah. Like, a woman's son is abducted. Please say they found the son, but the boy they bring home is not the right one. And not only that, but the police and the boy are both Adam and she's wrong. Yeah. That's insane enough and would be... Enough for just a psychological thriller. But then the mother is you know, forcibly confined to a psychiatric ward for speaking up about it by police or depicted as being completely corrupt. So, and I think you end up having sort of three types of movies at play mm-hmm. here competing for time and weight because I think there's what the movie mostly feels like, which is um, well-intentioned, well-acted, handsomely mounted, you know, fast-paced, sort of Lifetime-esque drama. Yeah. Where it's like this melodrama with lurid elements about, like, Christine Collins, who suffered multiple injustices but persevered. And I could see how critics could take that part of the movie as being a bit conventional and standard. But I, I, I think just the real-life tale of what the woman went through is, is so fascinating and heartbreaking and the performances are so strong that you are kind of engaged and you do choke up. Mm. But then also at the same time, like... A lot of this material, like the scenes with the really creepy uh, Jason Butler-Harner as the real-life serial killer uh, Gordon Stewart-Northcott, or the cop who exposes him, played by the always reliable Michael Kelly and... Stamper. If Doug Stamper from House of Cards is the only good guy on the force, something's wrong. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. But, um, like, all those scenes felt like material that, you know, could be in, like, Prisoners or Seven or mm. Mindhunter, those, like, gritty, hard-hitting, like, morbid crime thriller, you know, detective yeah. investigation procedures that I love and I think you love. Yeah, maybe that's why I enjoyed the film a lot more than I yeah, thought I would Yeah, because there's a lot of that in it yeah. as well. And then on top of that, you have a, a lot of the third act devoted to Jolie, you know, taking the LAPD to court and after, you know, an era of change of watching mm. her being ignored and manipulated and gaslit and, you know, suffer at the hands of the cops. It's incredibly satisfying to see briefly, you know, the tables turned and like Jeffrey Donovan and um, Colin Fiore get kind of scolded by yeah, like, a judge yeah. and the lawyer. And, you know, with the period setting, it reminded me of one of my favorite recent shows, you know, the Perry Mason reboot. And I just have been happy if the movie was you know, just the trial, you know, the courtroom drama. So I think you have these three things competing with each other. And I think while all the sections are to varying degrees good, I think at 140 minutes, the movie struggles to give them all the space they deserve. Like some stuff you want more of, some things you want a little bit less of. And I think they could could have probably picked two. Mm-hmm. You know, just focus on the Christine story or the investigation or Christine and the trial. Oh, or here the we trial go again. He's going for the miniseries argument, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, no, 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 no. I just, I think it could be a little cleaner and a tighter <clears throat> movie. Yeah. And I yeah. just think, I wouldn't say the pacing in this movie is baggy or bad. It's just that there was a moment in it where 
Northcott is arrested and Jolie's Collins is out of the psychiatric ward and I was like nah must be near the end because they're getting wrapped up and I looked at and there was like 65 minutes left <laughs> I was like why is there more to do but yeah. then there is more to do but yeah. it's just I, I do think sometimes the twists and turns of the story takes are a little bit hmm didn't think it was going there yeah, you know, yeah. it doesn't really feel like Oscar bait yeah yeah I agree yeah. Um, but, but on Malkovich I, I thought his casting is this reverend character who, you know, hosts a radio show speaking out against police corruption and becomes an ally to Jolie. It was interesting because, like, obviously Malkovich previously worked with Eastwood before and in the line of fire and at that time Clint had acted with him but didn't direct. Now it's the opposite. And um, I just think the fact that he's cast here would indicate they have a good working relationship. And I, I think he's used well here because, as I've said and will say throughout the series, like, I think he just specializes in the certain type of person who's, like, intelligent, intense, but has an air of danger. And what's more dangerous than going up against a corrupt you know, LAPD? And, you know, his part isn't the most showy, but, you know, just by the way Malkovich carries himself in his, you know, his big sermon at the beginning mm, yeah. or the multiple scenes throughout the movie, like backing up Collins. And you can automatically tell there's an edge to this reverend. Like, you just buy it. Like, the, the, the movie never really explains yeah, what yeah. gave him that. He's yeah, just you're like, like, this guy fought in World War One or yeah, something yeah. like that. And he's just fueled by this like rage over the injustice that he's seeing every day in his community. And just there's just lots of scenes of him storing into places demanding things like yeah. warrants by police or documents Backed from up the by just four guys, <laughs> yeah. four random dudes. And anytime that's happening, I kind of love it. Yeah, yeah. But I think what makes his reverend character quite different from a lot of Malkovich's other characters is the pure tenderness he shows Christine. And I, w- I would say that in all of the movies we watched for Malkovich in the 80s and 90s, what mostly defined his character is even the more sympathetic ones, is a sort of prickly, sharp quality, you know, mm, in that yeah. either they're looking down at other characters or or in, like, in the Empire of the Sun, you're not really sure if you should trust them, mm. you know? Whereas in The Changing, you never for a second doubt Malkovich's reverence and tensions for Christine. And I wonder, did, you know, Clint Eastwood give John Malkovich's robe because he knew Malkovich could be so kind and soft and yeah. thought he hadn't been given a lot of chances to show that on screen? Yeah, maybe, and, yeah. And uh, yeah. I do think there's a part of The Changing where, you know, they think they know what's happened to Christine's boy, but there's still a hint of uncertainty. And Malkovich's reverend is encouraging her to move on with her life and tries to assure her that it's what her son would have wanted. Mm. And she says, maybe, but maybe he'd want me to keep looking for him. And maybe he's somewhere you're waiting for me. And he replies sort of on the edge of tears, but calmly and softly, like, I believe he is waiting, ma'am. And he means in heaven. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and he says that when Christine and her son will be reunited in, you know, the sweet hereafter. He will know, the kid will know from front to back, end to end, heart to soul, that you did everything you could, Mrs. Collins. And the line delivery is so perfect and, like, you just kind of weep. Yeah, yeah. And, like, even if I I think the movie is sometimes a bit packing in too much stuff or is trying to tackle too many things, it's still very, very effective. Yeah. You know? So um, I would recommend people check it out. Yeah, I would too. As you heard in the intro, this show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, Ireland's largest network of independent podcasts. There's plenty of other great shows to check out on the network. Here's a taster of one. I'm Trevor. I'm Ed. And I'm Andrea. And we are The The Sinistream Club, where we take a movie that society deems a classic and put it to the Sinistream test, where we ask all the tough questions like, does this movie make any sense? Why isn't Tom Hanks in this movie? How many sandwiches are in this film? What kind of watches are people wearing? Was that sex scene really necessary, says my mother? What trivia does Trev know in Trev's Trivia? What trivia do I know? In Trev's trivia. That's what I said. I, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. All these questions and more will be answered every fortnight in the Cine Stream Club. Available from wherever you get your podcasts. And the Headstuff Podcast Network. I Know That Face are also delighted to finally get to tell listeners about Headstuff Plus. 
Headstuff Plus is the one-stop shop for everything on the Headstuff Podcast Network, Ireland's largest podcast network and the one to which I Know That Face belongs. If you're a fan of I Know That Face or any other shows on the network, become a member of Headstuff Plus and get bonus episodes of Headstuff Shows, other exclusive content, merchandise, early access to live events and lots more. We here at I Know The Face have already recorded a handful of bonus episodes where myself and Andrew talk about more current news and releases in the world of film and TV. But also in the future, we have plans for more actor-themed series as well, along with releasing episode outtakes, accompanying articles, etc. All for Headstuff Plus subscribers. To sign up to Headstuff Plus, it's just €5 plus fat per month. When you sign up, no matter what show or shows you are supporting, you still get access to everything. All the bonus material for all the podcasts on the network. A lot of great podcasts. Plus, by doing so, you'll be supporting I Know The Face to bring you more top material. For all the details and to sign up, visit headstuffpodcasts.com. And now, back to the show. We go for something a bit more fun. We do, let's do it. We do Burn After Reading. Do you want me to run it down? Yeah, yeah. let's do it. In Burn After Reading, John Malkovich plays Osborne Cox, a recently unemployed CIA analyst whose memo- memoirs are <laughs> stolen by his cheating wife, Katie, played by Tilda Swinton, and end up in the hands of Hard Bodies gym employees, Linda Litsky, played by Francis McDormand, and Chad Feldheimer, played by Brad Pitt. Determining the memoirs to be secret spy shit, Linda and Chad attempt to sell them back to Osborne, causing problems for everyone. I have a drinking problem? Uh, this doesn't have to be unpleasant. Uh, um, we found something for you in state. It's a, um, um, well, it is a, a lower clearance level, yes, but but it's but it's not, we're, I, look, we're, we're not, we're not, Terminating you. This is an assault. I have a drinking problem? Fuck you, Peck. You're a Mormon. Ozzy. Next to you, we all have a drinking problem. What the fuck is this? Whose ass didn't I kiss? Huh? Let's be honest. Okay. Um, I mean, let listen. us be fucking honest. This is a crucifixion. This is political. And don't tell me it's not. What sold this movie for me from when I watched it with my parents at age like 16? Um, the dildo one chair. Of Mal- <laughs> Not the dildo chair, no. <laughs> was the part where Osborne Cox is being fired. There's a guy in the back of the room. He's like, why am I, why am I being demoted? And he's like, you have a drinking problem. I have a drinking problem? You're fucking Mormon. Compared to you, we all have a drinking problem. <laughs> and he goes like, this is a crucifixion. Yeah. And he puts his arms out like yeah. that. <laughs> and yeah, so this guy is basically a booze hound with a severe overestimation of his own importance to everyone around him. And it starts out as a victim complex and gradually gets worse as his wife steals his financial records, changes the locks on the house, forcing him to live on his yacht and leaving him a paranoid wreck. And which eventually... Eventually leads him to murder Linda's manager, Ted, played by Richard Jenkins, who is a former Orthodox priest <laughs> and is put in a coma after a surveilling CIA officer shoots did you, him. Did you know that in the written screenplay of Burn After Reading, it constantly refers to him as the soulful manager of hard bodies? <laughs> you know, we've all had different careers and just the Polaroid of him dressed in the full Cossack and yeah, hat. Yeah, apropos of nothing. Oh, no ap- yeah, so good. I think just back to Osborne Cox. I think he's like a classic Cohen Brothers character in that everything that can go wrong for him goes wrong for him due to his either his own hubris or idiocy and it's a movie filled with classic Coen Brothers characters in that all of them could be the protagonist of their own movie but the Coens just decided to just make this big ensemble where anyone could be the protagonist I don't have a whole lot to say about this movie just because it's all joke 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 from beginning yeah. to end uh, like dildo chair George Clooney thinking Linda Litsky is a spy and just going oh 
<laughs> and seeing spies everywhere in the park. The thing that got me really funny this time that just made me burst out and I've forgotten about it is how obsessed Brad Pitt is with his bike. Yeah, you yeah. You know, the bit yeah. where John Malkovich is like, your head would be spinning if you knew all the machinations of place faster than those that Schwinn bicycle you've got there. And Brad Pitt's like, you think that's a Schwinn? <laughs> <laughs> and then later, like, he has to abandon his bike and he's like, that's a kryptonite lock. You can pick that fucker with a big pen. <laughs> <laughs> the joke I love the most in the movie is... Um, where Palmer, who's an actor I don't know. Palmer is the guy who's talking to J.K. Simmons? Yeah. He's Carl in Succession. Yeah, Carl in Succession, yeah, yeah. yeah. Where J.K. Simmons is like, what do we learn, Palmer? I don't know, sir. I don't fucking know either. I guess we learn not to do it again. Yes, sir. I'm fucked if I know what we did, though. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm not going to say this is my favorite Coen Brothers movie, but but it's close, and it's definitely my personal... Raising Arizona for the win. I think it's my personal favorite comedy there's ahead of Raising Arizona Muds Proxy, Big Lebowski. Just because I love that it's sort of a spoof of like spy movies or political yeah, thrillers. Yeah, it opens like, like a born movie. Yeah, it's that like on the janky like a satellite image, cheesy thriller music. And if you didn't know what the movie was, you'd be like, Am I watching like a Tom Clancy mm, <laughs> adaptation yeah, or yeah. something? And like it's like CIA headquarters Langley, you know, typed out on screen. But then the rest of the movie is actually just this farce or screwball comedy about how some of the people that are pulling the strings of society in the shadows are selfish buffoons. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I think Malkovich's character sort of feels like one of those older CIA guys you'd see tracking Jason Bourne in um, from Langley. And, yeah. You know, like Brian Cox or like David Strahan. Yeah. <laughs> one of those Jesus people. Christ, that's Jason. Jesus Christ, that's Jason Bourne. <laughs> <laughs> and you just see them. It's like... The movie starts like a Bourne movie, and then it's just like, what happens when they leave the office? Yeah, <laughs> you know? and uh, I just I love how intricately constructed this movie is, where literally everything set up has a really satisfying payoff, but at the same time, you have no idea where it's going, and it's filled with just tons of surreal humor and insane non sequiturs. Mm. Sorry, just the bit where he he says to his wife, played by Tilda Swinton, he's like, "Oh, I might write my memoir," and she goes, <laughs> <laughs> "It's the most condescending <laughs> laugh you've ever yeah. heard." Um, and I love dark comedies and Burn After Reading really goes down smooth because of Frances McDormand who plays just this kind of ray of sunshine in the movie. Yeah, <laughs> you just Lindelitsky. really like her. Yeah, um, but it, it's very nihilistic mm. in that the only thoroughly decent character, um, the soulful manager of our bodies, <laughs> gets brutally murdered. But McDormand's character who sort of kickstarts this whole thing gets everything she wants. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And um, I feel like when this movie came out critics were positive but basically like it's a fun folly you know it's nice to see the Coens kick back after No Country for Old Men and you know like all the goofs they couldn't put in that movie they put in here but I think this movie was weirdly prescient in certain ways in that like does that bit where Pitt and McDormand meet the Russians and they ask and the Russians ask are they ideological and Pitt clearly doesn't know what ideological (laughs) means and it's like I don't think so like that feels like something that someone would say in the Trump administration Mm. and then also just the scenes with Clooney have this paranoid vibe like he's being constantly he thinks he's being surveilled Uh, there's like a conspiracy out to get him I feel like all those concerns are a lot more rampant in society now yeah it is very prescient yeah you're right around the time this Bush was probably in power at the time this movie came out right it would have been transitioning to Obama just around this you would have been transitioning out of Perry I think what's really fun about Malkovich in those movies is that a lot of his characters in other movies have this sort of seething contempt for other people they deem less than and I love that in Burn After Reading from the very first scene where he's demoted from his job, you know, because he's an alcoholic. All that bottled contempt for everyone just explodes out. Yeah. And it's just there at that level for the rest of the movie. Like, he never is, like, chill. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, I have a drinking problem. Fuck you, Peck, you're a Mormon. Yeah. You know? And nearly right away, you learn that this is a dude who grew up really well off. Like, just the name Osborne Cox. Yeah. 
He's so fancy, it's a giveaway. But, you know, we also see him at a Princeton reunion. He wears a bow tie. There's the way he pronounces certain words, memoir. He's always trying to show off. There's the way he talks down to Clooney at that dinner party scene. And you sort of get a sense that he was gifted everything on a silver platter growing up. And I think it's very telling that there is, they include a scene with his father for sort of no reason Mm. other than to, I think, indicate that he has a very privileged, sheltered life. Yeah. And I think that gave him a big ego and that when he became an adult and he didn't get everything he wanted easily and life was harder. And his analyst job at the beginning of the movie seems very important, but I, I think he just has this thing where I deserve more. Yeah. And the, the, he, and he's angry. And because of his big ego, he blames others when things don't go his way. You know, when he gets demoted for being an alcoholic, immediately he's like, whose ass didn't I kiss? You know, this is a crucifixion. Literally compares himself to Jesus. Yeah. You know? And then that's, you know, the last scene of the movie, he delivers a big monologue about the league of morons he's been fighting his entire life. Like, he's got this persecution complex. Yeah. And I think his big ego prevents him from realizing that his failings are most likely of his own doing, you know, that he's as dumb as the rest of the characters yeah. in the movie. Like, he gets demoted and is immediately like, fuck you, I quit i'll write a tell-all memoir but he's nothing to say in a memoir yeah. you know when he you know tells tilda swinton about it she it's the most condescending thing <laughs> <laughs> and if he was nice to brad pitt on the phone or even just gave him like 50 dollars he would have gotten his files yeah. back but it becomes a big deal because he's immediately like who the fuck are you yeah. you know and you know he becomes so obsessed with getting these files back he doesn't realize how unhappy his wife is and that she's having a very obvious affair yeah. with george clooney and, uh, yeah, what Clooney says about his character, he's a bozo. Yeah. I think it's telling that, you know, spoilers, we don't even see him get shot at the end. The movie is like, he doesn't even deserve that. Because if we did see it, we might have sympathy for him. Mm. And, you know, we learn about it in that wrap-up conversation uh, that uh, concludes the movie between J.K. Simmons, the CIA director, and this uh, character played by David Raish. And I love that, you know, Malkovich's character is so annoying that J.K. Simmons is annoyed that he isn't dead. <laughs> you know, like, Raish yeah. is like, he's in a coma and Simmons, like, toots disapprovingly. He's like, and Raish tries to make him happy by saying, like, they, they don't think he's going to make it. Like, they're pretty sure he has yeah, no, brain sure he no brain function. And I, I think, I like that with that line, the Coen brothers are inviting you to make the joke. Like, did he ever have any? Yeah. <laughs> the first place, you know? Uh, I, yeah. I love this movie. I love it as well. I just love the. I think it's in the production notes on Wikipedia where um, Brad Pitt gave the Coens the script back and was like, "I don't think I'm. I don't think I can play a character this dumb." And they were like, "Trust us, you can." <laughs> but I love how Brad Pitt is very broad, but also doing like some very specific as well. Mm. And like, yeah, you sort of like him. <laughs> I don't know yeah, yeah. Because I think in another life, Brad Pitt could have been that kind of Jim bro. <laughs> yeah, you yeah, know. Fair. Um, do you want to hit Mod Twenty Two? No, but I suppose I, would, okay, I have to. You yeah. watched it. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't watch it. It's just burned into my brain after that press screening three years ago now. Jesus. John Malkovich plays James Bishop, or codename Mother, the Overwatch commander of a CIA SAC team led by James Silva, played by Mark Wahlberg, who is trying to get Indocar, which is a sort of replacement for Indonesia in this situation. He's trying to get Indocarian police officer and double agent Lee Noor, played by uh, Indonesian martial arts superstar Iko Uwais, to a plane 22 miles away from their CIA safe house. This is easily one of the worst films of the 2010s. Maybe the <laughs> worst. This is a plot. It has a plot that sinks as low as a shit-tier Call of Duty game mixed with incomprehensible action thanks to Peter Berg's chainsaw and hammer approach to direction and editing. Add a lead character who's essentially coded as being on the autism spectrum or as Asperger's syndrome or ADHD or as neurodivergent in some unclear way 
and the film somehow steps further into the realm of bad taste. Just watch the bellowing spitflex speech Wahlberg gives to the IT techs near the start of the film and tell me this isn't one of the most disorientating, uncomfortable watches you've ever had. Also, most miscast the characters ever. Like, Wahlberg is not made to be a sort of like... Savant. I'm a genius. Savant, <laughs> you know what I mean? special operative. I'm giving yeah. orders. You know, yeah. like he he's he his whole thing is that like he's he's got this eagerness to prove himself yeah, to people, yeah, you know, and an anger, yeah. And I wanted I wanted to see this movie specifically for um, Eco Oasis, who, in fairness, it's doesn't dis- pretty good. Yeah, yeah, doesn't disappoint in the movie. If people have seen the Raid or the Raid Two or um, the Night Comes for Us on Netflix, check them out. Great action movies. I also wrote a wrote an article on head stuff about Indonesian action. If you want to call it the new Indonesian extreme, it's called. If you want to. Check that out. Go for it. And I think what makes matters worse is that the film counts not only Eco Ace as both its star and action choreographer, but also UFC champion and WWE champion Ronda Rousey as well among its cast. And while Oasis talent, kind of magnetism, screen magnetism and athletic ability can shine through Berg's inexcusable shit work, uh, a fighter like Rousey needs like good direction, such as in Fast and Furious 7, uh, which she got in spades. Uh, Her fight scene with Michelle Rodriguez is incredible and that's that's the main disappointment of the movie for me but everything else about it is like either it's kind of just average to it's shit not, it's yeah. Not great. yeah yeah Malkovich is not with the main cast in Indocar or fictional Indonesia whatever you want to call it he's in a he's in a safe room across the world in what looks like Rome with the wise cracking analysts uh, that uh, really don't come across as, as all that wise and he's basically an, an exposition dumper and not even a head full of hair a full, not even a full head of hair styled as a crew cutter, a pair of battered Converse paired with a pinstripe suit can save him from one of the most thankless jobs this side of a tall extra cut off by the frame. <laughs> That's all I've got to say on that piece of shit. I did like the joke because his codename is Mother and then isn't there like a bit where he's like, you're going to have to talk to Mother about it. That's the only thing I remember from the movie. I don't remember that bit, thank God. <laughs> it's very bad. And I just think it's interesting that Peter Burke has made movies where, like, the action was competent and, like, fine. And he's worked with Michael Mann. Like, he's in Collateral. Like, mm. how can he mess this up? I know, yeah. <laughs> What's up strange. Yeah. We hit a, a great movie, uh, Velvet Bussa. It's, it's just amazing that, like, you can put Eco Ace both as a star and fight choreographer <laughs> in your movie and be like, I don't trust this guy. Yeah, yeah. It's like, no, no, we'll edit it to hell. It's insane. <laughs> we'll, we'll find it. You watch it's Eco, insane. You watch Eco Ace do this incredible athletic feat. And then handcuffed. You're like, we'll While find, he's handcuffed. We'll find it in the edit. <laughs> you're like, it's there. Yeah. It's, there. it's on. It's in the frame for you. Yeah. Jesus Christ, I'm going to have a heart attack. Um, Velvet Bullsop yeah set in the contemporary I'm glad you got your anger out of Mile 22 uh, I, ne- I needed that I needed yeah. that I've been holding it in for three years Velvet Bullsop set in the contemporary art world of LA Josephina a young gallery employee who aspires for greater things played by Zoe Ashton discovers a trunk of incredible art in the flat of the mysterious Vetral Deese her recently deceased neighbour even his name is the tinsel on the tree love that line <laughs> stealing his life's work taking it to her museum Josephine and an assortment of other people Josephine's art critic boyfriend Maud van der Waalt played by Jake Gyllenhaal her gallery's owner Rodor Hayes uh, played by Rennie Russo art curator Gretchen Tony Collette love all the names in this movie John Don Don um <laughs> All these people begin to make serious money off of Vitral Deese's work. Little do they know that accompanying Deese's spooky-looking paintings lies a curse to target anyone who profits off of them. I thought your studio was downtown. Too many addiction triggers. I worked here the last year. Well, I'd love to see all the new work you've done since moving because, you know, the team is, is geared up and ready to sell every new piece you have.
Right. Sure, of course. Now, you've, you've, you've been gestating. Gestation implies birth. Ideas come, but they kill themselves as soon as they appear. This is a slaughterhouse. Welcome aboard. You wrote a quite scathing review of this for Headstuff upon its release, calling it an empty, heartless piece of art and saying that for a piece of satire, it's not funny and as a horror, it's not scary. And your review, impeccably written as always, did hurt me to edit and post because <laughs> I had seen it at this point and uh, I kind of chuckled with glee throughout it. And in fact, Gyllenhaal saying a uh, critique is so limiting and emotionally draining is still my cover pick on Facebook. So uh, do you want to maybe tell people why you wouldn't advise them to watch it and your thoughts on Malkovich and then I'll counter. I'll launch my counter defense. Uh, yeah, sure. So I think Velvet, Velvet Buzzsaw is a film caught between a desire to be two things. A horror film about cursed paintings and a scathing satire of the art world. And I don't think it ever achieves either. I think a horror film in this in this vein needs likeable characters and the only likeable characters in this film are Natalia Dyer's Coco and Malkovich's Piers. Notice I mean likeable, not compelling. Yeah, right? I just, I just how do you not want to be Renee Russo in this movie? Like, I know she does horrible things, but like she's punk singer turned art gallery owner, wealthy as hell, awesome house, cool. It's just not my <laughs> life, just not the life I envisioned for myself, oh. Stephen. And I think there's a good team-up film featuring Coco, the naive intern, and Piers, the jadist artist, fighting the vengeful ghost who kills through his own artwork. And yeah, I know I bring up versions of films featuring platonic older man, younger woman team-ups that never get enough time in the actual film itself a lot because I'm a big fan of these kind of pairings. I don't know what that says about me psychologically, but there you go. On the other hand, it's better at being a scathing satire of the LA art world, but not even Jake Gyllenhaal's more Vanderwalt is compelling enough to really care about. And I just don't think Dan Gilroy is actually good at what he does. I think his subjects and his themes are often delivered via sledgehammer scripts and, as the case in Nightcrawler, even heavier performances. And I think the film needed a different perspective as well as a better director and writer. You don't like Nightcrawler? I think it's very, 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 very fucking heavy. And I think it's like, oh, it ble- if it bleeds, it leads. It's like, great. Yeah, how many other movies have made this point? Sure, sure. Do better. To me, this is sort of the best Robert Altman movie he didn't make because... I think it falls in his tradition of zeroing on a particular scene and just zipping through, zipping between all these multiple different characters within it with great energy. And it's true, these kind of brief glimpses it gives of these characters and their lives and their actions that the movie, I think, ultimately serves as a, a critique or a takedown of the world it's set in. And also, when he wasn't making satires, Altman made a couple of great horror thrillers, you know, like Images and Three Women. So I, I kind of like the genre bent of Velvet Bussaw for that. And I do think you could watch Velvet Bussaw and think Dan Gilroy is just taking the same easy shots everyone does at the art world. You know, that it's pretentious, critics are strange and don't know what they're talking about and art is too expensive. It's like Some of that is there. But I, I do think this movie is saying more interesting things about the relationship between art and uh, commerce. Because I think through the inclusion of the characters in this movie played by John Malkovich, um, who is this great older artist but who's in a dry spell, who I'll, I'll talk more about in a bit, and... David Deegs, uh, you know, I, th- I think this movie has a great respect for artists. And I actually love all the art in this movie. I want to stick my hand in the sphere. I want I want to see the hobo man. I want I want a Deese hanging in my house. And I believe the movie is really more criticizing the commercialization of art, or, or at least is calling for people to kind of stop bringing their own selfish wants and desires to art. And I think it's a morality play about that. And I think that's why you need to focus on the people you don't like. You know, like it's like a slasher movie where it's like the people who are coded as good live. The people who make the mistake, they die, you know? Well, if it's if it's a slasher movie, it needs to be better at the actual slashing. 
I disagree. I think the slashing is good in this movie. Um, but and I don't find the characters in this movie completely horrible. Like I, you know, Rene Russo, punk singer turned badass gallery owner. But I do think they all have a fatal flaw in that they at one point prioritize themselves over the art. You know, like Russo hides various Deese paintings in storage, depriving the public of them because it makes the ones she displays in her gallery appear more rare and pricey. Colette's character helps rich people buy paintings for their houses where they will be mostly hidden from the public to witness and gets an exorbitant amount of money to do that. Hall's critic, I actually think is really passionate about art and criticism and is good at his job. But while researching Deeves' life to write Rodor's uh, gallery notes and then a book on Deeves, he gives a negative review to an art show he actually liked because the person who was the focus of it was his girlfriend's ex. And it's these transgressions, actually, which is why the characters end up suffering. And I think they need to be the focus of the movie for that reason. And and in terms of the good, you know, you do have Diggs, Malkovich and Natalia Dyer's characters who survived, but but they survived because they never used Deeves' art or their position in the artwork for their personal gain. And I, I think what's unique about Malkovich in Velvet Buzzsaw is that the character appears sort of starts off as the butt of a recurring joke and winds up becoming the moral center of the movie a little bit in that you know he's talked about before we see him we know Pierce is a recovering alcoholic because Gyllenhaal looks at one of his paintings and is like oh sober hasn't been good for him (laughs) and when we first see him at that party scene he's like running around trying to find water because all the party is serving is alcohol and he's like in a really fed up way he's like is there any water in Miami (laughs) and just his demeanor you get a vibe that without alcohol which was such a fundamental part in his life I think he's struggling to relocate his uh, creative spark Mm. he just doesn't know if it can exist without alcohol and it's that great so he's Kicked out of the movie. <laughs> no, there's Until that great, the very end. There's that great scene where the gallery, the other gallery owner, uh, John Don Don, uh, played by uh, Tom Sturridge, goes to visit his gallery to see what he's been working on the last year. And he, he expects to see you know, loads of paintings and there's nothing. Or I think there's just one that's not even finished. And Pierce utters ruefully, ideas come, but they kill themselves as soon as they appear. <laughs> Which <laughs> is, uh, if you ever like have like a writer's block or like an afternoon where you can't write, it's that's what it feels like. Mm. But I do think even if he seems kind of tense and glum, he's still all about the art not money you know he's not a seller and uh, or you know he's not cashing in on his reputation like there's that earlier scene with John Dundon you know he comes up to Pierce at the party he's talking about his gallery's analytics to help maximise deals and Malkovich's Pierce is just in a very matter of fact way is like I'm fighting to get back to creation I'm not jetting around hawking fucking tickets and I think the moment with the character Pierce that I find really funny but actually kind of tragic is when he sees a Deese for the first time and it, it, he's in a trance and it, it, without even looking away he just pulls a whiskey off a waiter walking by his tray and just downs it mm. And you see this person whose main emotions seem to be anger actually have this sort of profound emotional reaction. And like he's confronted with this great art. He just falls off the wagon. He's like, I don't have it anymore. Yeah. You know? And I love that because Malkovich doesn't really get involved in any of the D stuff outside of admiring it as a fellow artist. Everyone else is in a horror movie. And he is this kind of, I think, kind of nice, uplifting arc about rediscovering himself. You know, like Russo gives him this good advice, you know, dependency murders creativity and gives him the keys to her beach house and tells him that he'll get out of his funk by forgetting about the artwork and staying there until he uh, makes something for nobody but himself. And I, I think the payoff of that, which I won't spoil, but plays over the end credits, so, you know, stick around for it. I I, I find that kind of really sweet. I do too, yeah. I like yeah. it. I like that bit, yeah. And I think uh, some of the lines in this movie are really cutting and good. Those, like act break shots of LA beautiful beautiful gorgeous yeah with like fog rolling in or yeah, like yeah, yeah yeah I think this movie is also very funny and uh, some bits I liked uh, I wrote them down through three of my favourite John Don Don seeing the trash bags on the floor of Pierce's gallery and being like wow 
And <laughs> 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 your sister be like, that's not art. Yeah. The whole thing about Tony Katz's character being killed in the museum, but nobody noticing because everyone thought it was an art installation yeah, is yeah. hysterical. Josephine is like, a bunch of school kids on tour thought it was fake blood and started playing with it. <laughs> <laughs> The, this interaction where Morph is freaking out to Rodora and he's like these deaths the disappearance everything that is now happening it's all connected to his art imbued with some spirit created out of some vital ideal and she's like it's a bit baroque don't you think <laughs> <laughs> I like the repeat- funny <laughs> yeah I like the recurring joke where um, Natalia Dyer's character Coco just keeps, keeps walking off, in keeps on- finding yeah. her boss dead <laughs> just multiple bosses in a row dead 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 and she's like ah! dropping a latte every time yeah, and like this movie isn't really ever scary. I'll admit that, but I do think it's kind Thank of you. nicely spooky in terms of it's like going to like a roller coaster or like or a haunted house or like a hall of mirrors and like mm. that. I think the backstory of Dees is kind of creepy, and I I like how the curse has the ability to bring other paintings to murderous life. Like the execution of all the death scenes is really fun. It feels like a more kind of surreal version of like the killings and final destination. You know, like can you really hate a movie where Billy Magnuson is killed by monkeys from a painting? You know what I mean? (laughs) Or um, one that has the title payoff that this movie does, which Mm, I adore. I think that is genius. Yeah. I like this movie. I think it's good. I don't. Once again, we'll have to agree to disagree. Although I will say you've convinced me to rewatch it. That's all I ever want. That's not an endorsement. (laughs) Is there anything Malkovich is in coming up that you're excited by? I only know the four I listed that I don't know anything about really I saw that there was like eight that were completed that he was in okay that are coming um, out. And nothing I can think of no yeah he's gonna be in a movie from the guy who directed Avengement called White Elephant but sadly Scott Atkins isn't in it oh yeah so I'm a bit like well, yeah, well. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that's the point um, the thing that stood out to me is the most promising is Charlie Day's directorial debut at El Tonto, mm. which I think sounds really interesting. A comedy about a silent character who I think is played by Day, who becomes an accidental celebrity only to lose it all. Like, it sounds like Charlie Chaplin or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah. I'll say there's some still some blind spots in Malkovich's career that I want to fill. Like, I've heard Jennifer Eight's kind of interesting. I want to see Mary Riley. The Young Pope's second season, the new Pope, he's the star in. He directed a movie called The Dancer Upstairs, which, and I think he's a cameo in it, which I would okay. be curious to watch. I want to also say that one of my biggest regrets in life is that my parents went oh, to yeah. see John Malkovich on stage in the National Concert Hall in a play. Like I think it was like pretty much a one-man show called The Infernal Comedy Confessions of a Serial Killer, where I, be- I believe he played a serial killer who was released from prison after serving a sentence and re- wrote a book about his crimes and is now doing a book tour. Yeah. And it's him describing all his crimes while this like Baroque opera music plays. My parents were like, there were so many beautiful women on stage like singing and dancing and I could not take my eyes off of John Malkovich. He was mesmerizing and they talk about it as it was like one of their great nights and I'm so sad I missed it mm. and um, I just want to tell people that you know John Malkovich does a lot of stage work I think still like in the UK and if you ever get a chance to go see him it's, it sounds like it's a great experience. I'm going to take it. <laughs> Come back to Ireland John Malkovich. Yeah. Uh, rate, review and subscribe wherever you get your podcast from. Email I know the at gmail.com if you'd uh, like to reach out the show follow us on Facebook Twitter and Instagram thanks to Charlene Fernandez for helping out and running our socials if you love the show please consider donating five euro a month to us through Headstuff Plus where you can find uh, special exclusive bonus episodes you know we've multiple available now including in our Leading Legends series focusing on A-listers like Brad Pitt and Denzel Washington and Jodie Foster Jodie Foster Andrew where can people find more of your work you can find me at the Headstuff Gaming section where we talk about what we play why we play and how we play it and you can also check out my review of Spencer which I think is going to win Kristen Stewart and Oscar come next year's season Check me out at joe.ee and the Heads of Film section. See you there soon, of course. Bye-bye.
This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, a hub for the creative and the curious. Shows are produced in association with Headstuff and the Podcast Studios Dublin. Find out more or become a member at headstuffpodcasts.com. Thank <laughs> you.